Hello, collectors and gatherers, poets and artists and scribes. Welcome, welcome. I'm here as I always am and reliably each week in and out with my co-host Grant Faulkner. Grant, we're closing out four years of doing this podcast together, which is kind of astounding. Holy moly, that is astounding. Or is it five years or maybe (laughs) three years? I've completely lost track of time these days, but... But seriously, Brick, I'm not sure what I imagined when we got started with this, but four years is astounding and, and impressive, I'll add, just because I'm personally impressed. And we just recently celebrated 200 episodes a few weeks ago. So yeah, it's fun to track all of these milestones. Yeah, and we're ending our fourth year, which falls now at the end of July on a topic that feels very appropriate because it has everything to do with collaboration. And Right Minded, of course, is a very collaborative effort. It's you and me fielding and finding the guests and prepping the show. And then our very talented producer, Jeremy, who truly is the backbone of the show because he does all the things we can't do, which is most of the things. So thank you, Jeremy, for another great year of shows. Uh, and then of late, we have LitHub in their distribution. So our collaboration is growing even bigger. And the reason I'm talking about collaboration is because we're bringing onto the show today, Stephanie Rafflock, who has just put together an anthology of She Writes Press authors called Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis, Women Writers Respond to the Call. And because I was intimately involved in the creation of this anthology, I wanted to invite Stephanie on to talk about what it takes to put together a collection, a little bit about what she learned, both because it's an interesting topic that a lot of writers think about doing themselves, and also because this particular book, Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis, is a special project that was born out of a desire to show how creating art is an important response in the face of collective struggle, which we are certainly facing right now. Yeah, I love the premise of this book, Brooke, which is that art keeps good alive in the worst of times. It reminds me of a a famous Toni Morrison quote who said, in times of crisis, create, uh, which I believe. And and also of note, you wrote the foreword for the book. And part of what you share in the book is that when Stephanie approached you to put together this anthology, your first response was actually ambivalence. You wrote, I wondered, as many writers and creators have been wondering in the face of the giant crises we faced, whether a collection like this would make a difference, whether it would be additive. And we talked about this four years ago when we started the podcast together, actually. I specifically remember wondering whether the world needed another writing podcast. But now here we are, more than 200 episodes later, and this endeavor we undertook is definitely one of the more additive things to my life. And and over these many years, I've heard feedback from so many people in the NaNoWriMo community and beyond how much they love what we do. And and creating this art in the form of a podcast has been very life-affirming. And I know from, from reading your foreword that this is kind of where you got to with this project too, right? That it was not just worthwhile, but actually truly an important endeavor. Yeah, that is true. You know, the anthology was inspired from a blog post Stephanie wrote. And when we talk to her today, we'll hear more that there was actually a deeper inspiration that I didn't even know about. But, um, you know, the project in many ways did stem from hurt and helplessness. Just given the title, uh, you can imagine that it asks the writers to ponder the hard questions, you know, how do we make art in troubling times? Uh, And, 
you know, it's not that all the pieces are sad, actually, because many of them are uplifting, but there is a power that happens in sharing, in conversation, in confessing, and when writers and artists respond to a collective call. And Stephanie speaks to this today as well, you know, that when we come together to offer our collective voices, uh, and that is exactly what an anthology is, it has a different kind of impact than just a single author doing that. And I felt that, you know, I felt the energy of it. And it was truly touching to watch the book come together, you know, mostly because we did the call for submissions and the authors had such a short window to respond. Um, we only gave them two weeks. And in the course of those two weeks, we had many, many responses. We did only put it out to the She Writes community. Um, I think we had over a hundred responses and the entire anthology came together in about three months. And that is definitely the fastest turnaround I've ever personally done on a project of this scope. And so, yeah, it turned out to be really rewarding. That is a very fast turnaround. And I just want to make sure to take a little bit of time to talk about anthologies as a format before we get to our interview, Brooke, and just to make sure listeners know uh, what we're talking about. Anthologies are collections, usually of essays, but they can include poems and artwork too. And art in the time of unbearable crisis includes all of these, right? Yeah, it's mostly narrative essays, but there are poems and about seven or eight pieces of art that are reprinted in the book as well. Yeah, and I, I was looking up the history of anthologies, and it's pretty fascinating that they can be traced back all the way to the 10th century. Who would have known that? And the incentive to compile various writers' work into a single volume just makes a lot of sense when you think about it in a historical context, because they were pulling the most salient pieces of people's work and acting just as modern curators do to identify the important part that readers or students would want to know about. With modern anthologies, there's usually a call for submissions like you all did, and then a central editor of the collection who is responsible for the project. So I'm curious, Brooke, if you can, can share a bit about what does it take to put together an anthology? I'm actually thinking of doing one myself, so this question is partly personal. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I mean, it is involved. Typically, an editor will put out the call for submissions, and it will be an open call that gives writers and contributors anywhere from three to six months or even longer to respond with their work. Uh, and then the other thing that many editors of anthologies will consider is who they want their contributors to be and then reach out to those people directly. Uh, in the case of this book, Stephanie and I did decide from the outset that it would only be open to She Writes Press authors, and that was for lots of reasons, but one of them was for speed. You know, it was, it gave us a container in a sense to only say, okay, it's going to these people and you have to move fast. Uh, but typically, and especially if the creator of an anthology hopes to sell the book to a traditional publisher, it's actually pretty essential that big names be tied to the collection. But getting big names, of course, is challenging because it's hard to approach a well-known writer uh, and ask them to submit something without giving them meaningful time to do so. And then sometimes you have to pay them, depending on who they are. Uh, and so it's also pretty common for anthologies to reprint previously published essays, because that's another way that you can sometimes get bigger names attached to a project, but not have them have to write something new. Uh, and anthologies 
always involve a ton of project management, you know, like after the call for submissions, there's the vetting, the editing, putting them into an order, the back and forth with the contributors, the accepting and rejecting of their edits, <laughs> you know, it goes on and on. And then of course, there's the work of putting together the book, which is just the normal stuff of a cover and the interior and the data, which is why, you know, as I'm going all through all of this, the speed of this project was pretty unprecedented. Um, and Stephanie and I were able to put together the book in about a a quarter of the time it would typically take. Um, but that was the goal from the outset, you know, because the anthology was coming on the heels of the war being declared uh, in Ukraine, and we felt a real urgency to get it out fast. But, you know, with the war sort of being an impetus back in March, I have to say that we thought it would be over by the time the collection came out. Hmm. But here we are, and the war is most definitely not over. But, you know, regardless of the war in re Ukraine sort of being the inspiration, there, of course, are all of these many, many multiple crises that are that are brewing in the world. Yeah, I think they're going to be all too present, unfortunately. Uh, but Brooke, before we bring Stephanie on, I was wondering if you could share with listeners what the appeal of anthology is from an industry perspective. Yeah, I mean, insofar as I can speak to my own experience and what I understand um, the appeal to be, you know, and also just the history part is interesting. I mean, you mentioned going all the way back to the 10th century, but I think it was the 16th and 17th centuries that they really reached their pinnacle as a means to gather poets' voices. Um, and anthologies today are still gathering certain kinds of works like poets. Erotica is also a very popular form. And we talked about that when we had Rachel Kramer Bustle on the show a while back, um, because anthologies are actually one of the rare mediums for erotica, um, because readers love the diversity of voices in these forms, particularly with poetry and with erotica. And my own experience of anthologies have primarily been essay collections, because at Seal Press, we did a ton of anthologies and they ranged from collections about depression to housekeeping, to erotica, to travel. Um, there were moments of feminist awakenings was one collection. And then we had a lot of collections that showcased writers of color on various experiences, um, being Muslim, being an immigrant, the feminist experience. And I've always enjoyed working on anthologies. Um, we actually have another one coming out on She Writes Press pretty soon that we're pushing through almost but not quite as fast as Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis. Uh, and it's an anthology about abortion edited by Elizabeth Hines that's called Aftermath. And due to the topic, there's just some urgency to get it out before the election. Uh, and what appeals to the industry about anthologies is that they can be more saleable. The content can cover more ground. And in some cases, you can get authors who would otherwise never publish with you. Uh, and that is the case with the abortion anthology. You know, we're getting some pretty famous names to attach themselves to this project. And that can have the effect of making the book a go-to read on the topic, which can secure pre-orders. And so if an editor can get a certain number of big names attached, then it's not by any means a slam dunk, but it sometimes can move the needle on being able to place a project with a traditional publisher if that happens to be your aspiration. Thank you for that guidance. <laughs> and it's cool to hear that Stephanie very intentionally created this as a community project among the She Writes Press authors. And Brooke, I know you refer to each other as She Writes Press sisters. So let's turn our attention to what this process has been like for the woman whose inspiration brought this project to fruition. And we'll do that right after this super concise break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. I am so thrilled to have on the show Stephanie Rafflock today, who is an author, speaker, and voiceover artist. And she's the editor of a new anthology that I have a particular investment in called Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis. Stephanie is also the author of Creatrix Rising, Unlocking the Power of Midlife Women, and she penned the award-winning book, A Delightful Little Book on Aging. She lives in Austin with her husband and a goofy Labrador retriever named Mickey. Stephanie, wow, it has been a whirlwind few months. So I am just pleased to introduce you here since we're going to be talking about this new anthology that you put together called Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis. I'm so happy to be here, and it has been a whirlwind since we started this project. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, obviously, we're most definitely starting, however, with the inspiration for the anthology, its origin story, so to speak. So can you share about that and talk about the post that you did that inspired this project? And then what led you to consider that this idea could become a published anthology? Well, there are a couple points of inspiration on this particular anthology, and one that I hadn't thought of until recently, and that is when I was a student at Naropa University, I took a community outreach class. And the idea of community outreach for writers was that you weren't truly a writer, you weren't truly an artist until you gave away your talent, skills, and abilities to someone that might not have the same privilege of sitting in a classroom as you. And in that way, you developed this other side of your writing self. So early on at Naropa, I began teaching a class at a place called Attention Homes of Boulder, which was a little play on detention homes, which was the name of places they put girls when, when I was a teenager who weren't getting along well with their families. And I had always assumed that these were state placements. But what I encountered at Attention Homes of Boulders was a house full of young women aging between 14 and 17 that had been brought there by their mothers because life at home was just too dangerous or it was too difficult. And so it was with these young women, and I had never taught anything in my life, but I learned to teach poetry at Attention Homes of Boulder. And that was really my first anthology because it was at the end of the semester was December. And we decided to do a book of poetry together. Now, I didn't think of it in terms of an anthology in those days, nor did I think of myself as a curator or editor in any way. But I typed up all their poetry. I took it to Kinko's. That's how long ago it, this was. And had it run off and had the book bound with, you know, some, some heavy paper on the outside. And they each got three copies for Christmas. And um, it was an experience that never left me that... Part of being an artist is creating your art, and part of being an artist is giving your art in a way that it does good in the world. So the second part of this inspiration for me was a post that I wrote about my dad in Berlin, 1941. And he was um, taking pictures of a 
city that was basically reduced to rubble or and i i said the the year wrong it's 1945 ni- 1941 the war was over in 1945 but berlin was still a dangerous place and he took photographs and in taking photographs he met some local artists and he brought home with him drawings paintings watercolors made by these people who had suffered through four hellacious years. And I always wondered about those drawings. I have four of them framed in my house now by unknown artists that he had made friends with. It's like, how could you create art in a time like this? How could you even think about making something when the world was so harsh and so ugly? And I realized that this is the perfect time for making art. And here we are at a time in our culture where we've got a lot of blood sport politics going on, pandemic. Um, we have a war um, in Ukraine uh, across the ocean that's going to affect all of us worldwide. And I think these are the times that we need art more than ever. These are the times that we need poets more than we need politicians, which, by the way, is a Jonas Menkes the great poet Jonas Minkus, that's his quote, not mine, that it's like societies perish when they listen to their politicians instead of their poets. So that's the twofold inspiration for this anthology. And um, it was enough to get me to call you, Brooke, and say, can we do this? (laughs) I love that, Stephanie. I also loved, um, I guess, how producing art in a time of crisis, uh, you, you have to move quickly. And so I'm very impressed by your ambitious timeline with this book. And I, I hear you approach Brooke with this idea in late February, early March, and the book uh, published by She Writes Press uh, came out in late June. So the whole thing happened in just about three months, which which is, I think, is what it took for my uh, last round of copy edits with my publisher, just to put that in some context. <laughs> um, so you were on a very accelerated schedule, which I'm admiring of also, uh, um, since I since I put on uh, NaNoWriMo every year. So I'm curious to know, you know, what are some of the things you learned on this fast-paced journey about putting together an anthology? Well, I got a little bit of a sense of what the people behind the scenes at She Writes Press do. When, when you're a writer, you don't think that much about how your publishing company runs or, you know, what an editor's job was. And suddenly, almost on a daily basis, there were something like, I don't know, 75, 80 pieces that, you know, had been through editing that then needed to go out to the writers for their approval and changes or acceptance. And there was so much to keep track of. And I thought, oh my gosh, these, these people at She Writes, they do like, you know, 80 books, like twice a year they do this. (laughs) And I found, it's not that I didn't respect them before, I certainly did, but I found this new appreciation for what these people do behind the scenes and just how it's not, it's not just a job you can phone in or you can just show up for. I mean, you have to stay focused. It's like the devil is in the details, right? So that was the first thing I learned is that, oh boy, there's so much more going on here in publishing than I ever realized. And so much more going on with editors than I ever realized that um, just good naturedly take years or decades of experience and put out there often to have a, an artist come back to them and say, oh, I just feel it isn't in my voice. I I, I need to, um, I, I can't accept these changes. And so then I would have to go to Brooke and Brooke always had this 
way of communicating with people that was empowering to them, that was kind to them. And um, it was interesting for me to watch how she communicated and kept everything on this very measured, even keel with so much going on. I mean, it was a lot like juggling cats, which is something I've never (laughs) really done, but it's not something I'd really want to try either. Well, it was an accelerated schedule and I was sharing before you came on that it was the fastest I'd ever done. And so we did well. Uh, but I also, you know, I certainly want to share more with listeners that one of the things that we discussed at the outset of this project was how much we felt that people are longing to create in times of crisis. So you touched upon that in your earlier answer. But as human beings, we want to respond so often, but we don't know what to do in the face of war, in the face of our right being stripped away, you know, in the fallout of the global pandemic and all of the political divisiveness, as you referenced. Uh, And I think we have to add to this list now the epidemic of gun violence, too, you know, which is so pervasive and an existential threat. And so we put out this call for submissions and we gave authors two weeks. Um, And what I was struck by was how swift the response was. And so I just wondered if you could speak to what you make of that. I mean, I wasn't surprised But in some ways, I was, you know, just that you put out the call and then the women responded in force. Well, I think that you really um, bring the idea home that people want to help. None of us like sitting back and feeling impotent, that we can't do anything. What can I possibly do? And yet we can all do something. And I think that we live in a time where there's this great longing to do something and this hesitation of, well, what could that possibly be? I mean, I don't, I don't have the logistics and, and things in place to do some of the things that I would like to do. But when I look at what it means to be a writer, I do know that I have a voice and I can use my voice. And so to share, as I learned at Naropa, this talent, skill, and ability with someone else, what we shared in this anthology were stories of loss and love and hope. And that's really the human story. It ceases to be your story or my story. It becomes the story. And it's the story of our collective suffering. And it's also the story of our collective celebration. Um, The other part of that is that immediately the thought about this book is that the royalty proceeds for this book would go to a place where it could best benefit the world. And so Brooke and I had several conversations about that, and we looked at several organizations. And at the end of the day, it came down to World Central Kitchens, who feed people worldwide in times of crises, whether it's war or it's famine or it's um, a natural disaster. And I think about um, Jose Andre, who started World Central Kitchen, and you know this guy is a chef. He probably had a moment that brought him to his knees too when he said, "Look at all the suffering that's going in the world. How can I, as a as a chef, make a difference?" And boy, does he make a difference! And he has managed over a period of time to set up the logistics to bring in the food trucks and bring in the caterers and the, you know, the paper products that you need to put um, food in a box and be able to take it away um, to create warehouses and stuff. So there's the artistic piece where people can read and be inspired, 
by these stories of loss and love and hope. And then there's this next piece where knowing that when somebody buys this book, the royalty for this book will go to World Central Kitchens. And I just think we all long to do something like that. It's innate in us. And I need to hang on to that right now, that there is goodness in humankind and it is innate in us to want to share that goodness and want to help our fellow human beings. Well, Stephanie, I want to talk a little bit about your own writing. You're the author of Create Tricks Rising and a delightful little book on aging. And you've done your last three books also in pretty record-breaking time. And in addition to being an author, you're a speaker and a voiceover artist. So I'm, I'm curious, what's been your own experience of your art making an impact in the world? Because you've spoken so, so eloquently and movingly about the, the impact that art can make. Well, I discovered fairly early on that I was going through a process that many of my generation um, was going through, and that's the process of aging. And aging for men and aging for women are slightly different. Um, for women, it can be a terrifying prospect. For men, it can be as well. But I did focus on women because we ha we live in such a youth-oriented culture that underscores that our worth somehow is tied up by the size of our thighs or um, whether or not our face is lined or whether or not our booty is perky. And so I wrote about embracing age as a glorious and sacred third chapter of one's life, that it's a time to shed those um, old stereotypes. And I got tremendous response from that. I was surprised at the response that I got from that. But like I said, I found out early on that there were a lot of women going through this process that had the same kind of concerns and anxiety about getting older that I did. So my second book, Creatrix Rising, was about this idea that at midlife, there is a new archetype emerging for women. I hold midlife at 50, not at 40, but, you know, kind of at the, at the menopausal age that there is a new archetype emerging for us. The old archetype really comes from the late poet and playwright, Robert Graves, who wrote about maiden mother crone. And he called this the summation of a woman's life that inspired his poetry. And when I first heard that, I thought, wow, what a dated thing. I mean, first of all, the whole idea of maiden, I don't know any young woman that relates to this idea of being maiden. It brings up images <laughs> of some barefoot virgin, tra-la, tra-la, traipsing through the forest, and it just doesn't, it's just not relevant. And then the whole idea of motherhood has become skewed somehow, that motherhood is this, you know, kind of perfection and Madonna and whatnot. And I think that most mothers I know, their, their courage shows up because their knees are skinned and there's baby barf on their shoulders. And then the third name, the crone, really got to me because as a, as a wordsmith, words matter to me. And when I traced the etymology of the word crone, it comes from the old French word carrion, which is the rotting flesh of dead animals. And it entered the lexicon in the 1300s, and it's meant as an insult. So I know there have been feminist groups out there that have, you know, tried to re-embrace the word and, and, um, and dress it up, but some words are not worth embracing or re-embracing. So Creatrix Rising was about this idea that like, let's choose a new archetype 
you know, I think that if Carl Jung were alive today or Maria von Franz that, you know, brought Carl Jung so many of the fairy tales throughout Europe, uh, they would both say, of course, archetypes change. Of course, things evolve. So the creatrix was one of the three Greek fates. There was the spinner, the weaver, and the cutter. And the creatrix was the weaver. And the word literally means a woman who makes things. So that was the second iteration, that book, of women and aging. And I love writing about the topic of aging because I know that there's a reason that nature keeps us alive past midlife biologically, we're not really of use to the world anymore. So why does nature keep us around at this age? And I like the idea that there is a creative time of reflection and reinvention that's meant for us in the third chapter of life. And I, I can't, I can't get excited about that enough or passionate about that enough. So I continue to write about those things and it shows up in my public speaking and um, I hope to keep doing it. I hope to keep doing it with Brooke Warner. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie. I hope so too. And, you know, we wanted to end today's interview on uh, going back to the anthology because I know that you have another single author book in the works, which is a memoir. And I'm curious, uh, would you be inclined to do another anthology based on your experience of this one? And what advice do you have for listeners out there who are thinking they also might want to edit a subject specific anthology, which is basically what this is? Well, my, my advice would be take your time, (laughs) (laughs) slow it down a bit. Um, you know, anthologies are wonderful things. Uh, women are very cooperative. We're, we're less competitive and more cooperative, um, in my experience. And so anytime that you can get writers together, painters together, dancers, musicians together to create, um, something of the collective, I, I think that it can be a magical experience. And I would say, don't shy away from it. I was very lucky because I had mentoring on the side, a la you, Brooke. So um, I wasn't alone in the dark doing this. But these kinds of collective projects are are just wonderful because you really aren't alone. Um, you're standing with a lot of other people sharing that light and therefore bringing more light. Yeah. And so based on that, do you think you can imagine or would consider doing another one and maybe just a word to close on, you know, the work in progress that you have being a memoir and just juggling multiple projects in that way? Boy, I skirted around that question, didn't I? (laughs) Whether or not I'd do another one. Um, I'm not quite sure, Um, but I wouldn't close the door on it. I, I will say that. Yeah. As far as the memoir goes, Um, This is a memoir about belief and belonging, which is part of the human condition. And um, I look forward to sharing that as time moves forward. Awesome, Stephanie. Well, thank you for bringing this anthology into the world and for doing it together with me. It It was a fun and fast experience. And I wish you all the best with that and with the next project. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks, Grant. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 
Six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Brooke, for this week's book trend, I'm reminded of the phrase, all of the world is a stage, which is truer than ever in our world of social media performance these days. I say performance because that's what social media is to a degree for everyone, I think. Uh, but obviously, some people have gone way further with the performance of self than others, of course. And I'm talking about all this because I, I read this recent article in LitHub by Kate Eichhorn, and she explores the idea of this new realm of artists who, who goes way past... Uh, all the usual gatekeepers because of their talent for creating content about themselves and getting masses of followers, you know, not, not necessarily because of the artistic merit of what they produce, but because of their online performance abilities. And Kate goes through different examples, but I think of, of, of this type of uh, kind of online performer, but I think the one most of our listeners will relate to is Rupi Carr, who was basically a teen poet in the suburbs of Toronto. And she took a creative writing class and asked her professor for guidance on how to get published. And her professor told her, you know, submit to uh, literary magazines, you know, like any professor would, this is common advice <laughs> and thousands and thousands of other poets around the globe uh, do that. And uh, she did it. Uh, and she got rejected, but she was not going to take that. And she took matters into her own hands and she self-published actually with Create Space, which is now Kindle Direct Publishing. And she became a best-selling poet along the lines of, you know, few poets in the whole history of the world, actually. <laughs> she might be one of the best-selling poets ever. And that's because she has this Kardashian-like presence on Instagram. She she fills auditoriums on her book tours as if she's a top 40 rock band. And, and I know all of this because I actually follow her on Instagram. And so is her poetry good? Uh, I would say maybe not especially. Uh, but she's obviously a lot of people like it. But I think the other question is, is she good for poetry, for writing? And, and that's actually my question for you, Brooke. I guess I think that anyone who's self-expressing in this way, specifically because she does center poetry, is good for poetry and good for writing. Uh, you know, poetry is such a squishy thing in publishing. People really love poetry. Some of our greatest heroes are poets, but most of those people are also old or dead. You know, I have to say that out loud. Rupi is very young. She's very appealing. Uh, you know, I definitely agree with you that there's a performative element to it that might be a little bit troubling for old school kinds of people, especially maybe industry people. But poetry is so hard to sell and so little breaks through. And so it's hard to say whether she is at this point more artist or influencer. Uh, but I, I do love that poetry is getting out on social media platforms and that it is a container for this genre, you know, that is both accessible and free. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I don't think the popularization of poetry, even this type of popularization is a bad thing. I think the thing I admire about Ruby and others is the way they crash gates because I generally don't like gatekeepers. And, and Icorn in her article makes this interesting distinction between three different kinds of capital. 
She says there's cultural capital, which means a person's social assets, which include but are not limited to their educational credentials and style. And then there's a person's social capital, which is a person's social networks or sphere of influence. And, and both of these kinds of capital are the kinds of capital that help you get through the gatekeeper's gates, you know, so they're, they're about privilege. But now she says there's this other kind of capital, content capital which means the ability to create content, content about oneself online. And as I said, I'm all for crashing those gates with new kinds of capital and approaches. So I'm, I'm not exactly proud of myself for acknowledging that I worry about a culture that, that relies so heavily on artists being, you know, being nothing more or less than the sum of the content that they can produce about their lives as artists or writers. And when I scrolled through Rupi's photos of a recent tour, I have to say that I didn't exactly see the poetry in it, yet I strongly support her. Yeah, I mean, I think she used to focus a lot more on the poetry and perhaps in her popularity has shifted some of how she's presenting herself. So that's another thing that can happen. You know, the more popular you get, perhaps the more self-focused you get. It's mm-hmm. hard to say. She's become a little bit more performative, I think. Um, and But I agree. As an indie publisher and supporter of indie writers, I also admire her. Um, she said she approaches poetry like running a business. She's savvy. She's not precious. And she works really hard to write and tour and post. And she even has a team who helps her oversee operations and manage projects. So to your point, she's more like a rock star than a poet. Yeah, she is. Uh, you know, so to her, all the world is a state. Stage. And um, she is certainly bringing poetry to many who might not read it. And I think she's also inspiring others to break through those gates that you mentioned and to create themselves and to put themselves out into the world. So I am definitely all for that. Yeah, I, I admire her for her entrepreneurship and I even envy her for it. But it's also just not me. And and I also hope that writers don't feel the pressure to be rupee when they're not. I don't think you can really force this. Uh, you have to enjoy it. And you also have to accept that we're living in a world where performances like rupees are going to be with us for good because they're they are powerful. Yeah, it's definitely going to be with us for good. I read that bookstores like Powell's in Portland even have a new category of poetry called Insta Poetry. Uh, although books seem to be an afterthought for Ruby, actually, and many Insta poets. And it's one of the things that fascinates me, which is how publishing a book isn't even necessarily the end goal for a lot of these folks. You know, it's merchandising T-shirts and mugs with poems on them, which might even be more desirable. I'm sure they're making a heck of a lot more money on that stuff than books. Yeah, I think it's interesting how Instapoets have, have definitely done an end run around reviewers and critics as a result. Um, you know, like who cares about a review in the New York Times when you get a million likes on Instagram? I'm feeling sorry for those poor, lonely gatekeepers. <laughs> the poor, lonely gatekeepers. We'll end it on that. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I guess I continue to be in the role of gatekeeping even as i slam gatekeepers just like you do grant but in some ways we're gatekeeping here on right-minded we're choosing and you know curating our own content uh so i'll just think of us as having you know content capital for now we hope you (laughs) like our content capital we'll bring you some more next week and every week uh but this also is the last podcast of this season, as I said, and in August, we're going to bring you some uh, of our best uh, episodes of the year. So we hope you enjoy those. And then we will be back with new episodes the first week of September. So happy summer, Grant. Happy summer, Brooke. We'll see you later. 